Good morning. Good morning. You doing all right today? Before I begin, um, I feel like I need to clarify something uh, that I said in a previous message. I don't normally have to do that, but I feel compelled to do that today. Last week, I began my message talking about fathers and Father's Day and um, the fact that some fathers are hard to purchase for because, you know, they have everything that they need. And uh, some of you misheard me say something last week. Uh, I talked about some fathers, you know, they, they don't need uh, a lot of things. And part of the reason why they feel like that their 14-year-old pairs of underwear are uh, still good. I wasn't talking about me when I said that. I promise you. I don't know why I'm having to tell you this, but I just bought some the week before. I promise you. I say all of that to say this. Every single Sunday that I step up here and begin to open up God's Word is an adventure. Uh, I promise you that. And listen, I'm, I'm the adventurous type, uh, and, uh, but today we're, I want to start with that, that idea of adventure. But why don't you grab your Bibles, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is where we are today. And again, every time I step up here, it is an adventure. You never know uh, how things are going to, 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 to be spoken, but more so how people are going to hear what you have to say. I do consider myself an adventure, by the way. Um, I, I like exploring. I like uh, seeing things that I've never seen before, I like doing things that I've, n- I've never done before. Uh, for instance, I've been spelunking. Anybody been spelunking? You know what spelunking is? It's when you, you'd go into a cave and you, you sort of wander around with a, uh, a hard hat and you're, you're exploring uh, parts of a cave. Um, I, I've been certified as a scuba diver. Uh, did that many, many years ago. So I've done scuba diving. Uh, Jennifer and I actually ziplined across the highest zipline in America one time. Uh, we were on a trip out in, near Colorado Springs and, and did that. So uh, I love an adventure, amen? You like doing that? Listen, I have my limits. You may, you may as well. Uh, most of us do. Not everyone has a limit. One of my favorite documentaries that I've ever watched is a movie called Free Solo. Uh, it's a story about a rock climber by the name of Alex Honnold. Uh, he's a, a professional rock climber. I've, I've literally watched this movie at least 10 or 12 times. Um, I've watched it again even recently. Let me tell you why this movie is significant. Uh, and, and it's c- because it's telling the story of something that happened on June the 3rd, 2017, when Alex Honnold did what many believe to have been an impossible feat, He became the very first person to scale up the cliff of El Capitan uh, solo without ropes. El Capitan is a 3,200-foot granite wall uh, in Yosemite Valley in Yosemite National Park. Um, I've walked up, my family and I, we've walked up to the, the base of that, uh, that rock face just looking up. It's, it's an incredible thing to see and to behold. And if you've ever been up close to that mountain, you've ever been up to, to El Capitan, especially for those of us who are not skilled climbers, it is straight up. But somehow, some way, uh, Alex Honnold found a way to, to scale that rock wall, did it by himself, but when they say free solo, he, the free part is he did it without ropes. Not one piece of climbing gear ex- except a bag of, of, of chalk that he would rub on his hands. Beyond that, uh, no climbing gear. He did it all, scaling that 3,200-foot wall in just three hours and 56 minutes. And he also did it without something else. 
He did it without fear. He wasn't afraid to do it. If you've had the occasion to watch the movie, you know that in the middle of the movie, they take time to test his fear center, test his response to fear. They did this MRI of him. They put him in the machine. And while he was in the machine, they began to show him pictures of of traumatic scenes. And over and over again, just scenes of somebody holding a knife or, or some, somebody receiving some kind of injury. And scene after scene after scene while they're uh, taking this MRI of his brain. And what they found as a conclusion to that, they found no activation in his amygdala, which is the fear center of the brain. And the things that would stimulate your fear center, stimulate uh, the, the amygdala in most of us, didn't even register anything, didn't trigger him at all. Now, I will tell you, I'm an adventurer, but my amygdala works very well, right? I mean, if I step out of my house and I see something wiggling nearby, you know, I, listen, I'm not afraid of snakes, but I'm not a fan of snakes, amen? Danny Heath, spiders, your amygdala works quite well with spiders, so I hear, yeah? So we all have that. Most of us have that, that tr- trigger within us, that fear center Uh, I've never attempted to scale a 3,000-foot wall with ropes, much less without ropes. And so all of us, we have that idea, that fear center. Most of us are not like Alex Honnold. We have natural uh, natural fears. In fact, God gives us these natural fears uh, to to protect our lives. So we don't try climbing a 3,000-foot wall without ropes. Amen? But that does not mean that we must always walk around in fear. We're going to have natural fears. Are you afraid to die? Yes, m- no, maybe. No, God, when God tells us that everything is going to be okay, and He tells us this in many places in Scripture, do you, do you think it's okay then for us to be, be fearful of what's going to happen? Over and over again, Jesus has told us, do not be afraid, do not be troubled, don't worry. Why? The reason why is because our God has everything under control. He has it all planned out. Ultimately, He wins, we win, we all win. Everything's going to be okay if we're in Christ Jesus. And yet, many of us as Christians, we live in fear. We, we may say we trust Jesus, but we actually believe something else. We, we, we think that things might not just work out for us like Jesus says they're going to work out. Well, today we're going to be talking about a group of people who had some fears and they were afraid of what would happen to their to, to what has happened to their family, to their friends who had died, uh, and uh, they they themselves are believers. But what's going to happen to these that we care about? They've died already. They're afraid of what would happen to their friends, but they're also afraid of what what was going to happen to them one day. And we're talking about these believers known as the Thessalonians. And so today, I want us to take a look at some encouraging words that the Apostle Paul had for some people who weren't quite sure what was going to happen to them when they die. They were fearful that Paul's going to encourage them and show them why they have no need to fear. We'll find it here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. So if you're, you have your Bibles, I know we have some guests with us today, and God bless you, thanks for being with us today. We're going to do now what we always do at the beginning of the message. We're going to invite you as well as the rest of the congregation. Let's all stand together, and we stand in the honor of reading of God's Word. You follow along as I read it aloud. These are the words of the Apostle Paul. Here's what Paul writes, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep 
that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We don't have to fear death. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We do not want to be a a fearful people. Yes, Lord, you've You've given us the capacity to fear. Lord, we should not fear those things that you've given us hope over. So Lord, I pray that you open our hearts to see the truth of this passage today. In fact, Lord, there may be someone here who claims your name, but is living with an unspiritual fear. So Lord, I pray that you help them to see, inform them, Lord, of what it means to to die in you, but also give them the hope that they need. The hope that will bring encouragement that no matter what we face in this world, no matter what challenge befalls us, no matter how bad it gets in this life, we know that there is a life still to come and that it's a life with you and with others who have gone to sleep in you. So Lord, we ask your encouragement, your prayer. We pray, Lord, that you uphold us in this and we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Go ahead and have a seat. Thank you. We're in the middle of this Stand Firm series taken from Paul's first epistle to the Thessalonians. And as you've seen throughout this journey, if you've been journeying with us week after week, Paul is writing to bring encouragement to the Thessalonian believers. These are a group of people who are facing some hardships, they're facing some challenges, they've got persecution that, that they're, they're dealing with, hardship all coming because they've said the name of Jesus and claimed Him as, as their Lord and Savior. And though they were facing all of these challenges, Paul was, loved them so much, cared for them so much, was so much invested in them that he wanted to encourage them and wanted them to stand firm no matter what came against them. And a key to their standing firm was the idea of hope. Having hope and being encouraged that no matter what they faced, that God had everything in control. Now we know that our greatest hope in life is Jesus himself, Amen. He is our hope, the center of our hope, and it's in knowing Him that we ultimately have eternal life in Him. The sad truth is there are a lot of people who aren't living with this hope. Instead of living with hope and living with the encouragement of hope, they're living in fear. And, and I know that we, we've, we've emerged into an unusual period of time in, in our nation's history right now. We're, we're living in a culture, in a climate of fear. Our culture the media, social media, it's all driving in, and we're, we're encouraged whether we realize it or not, and whether it's being done uh, intentionally or not, we're, we're, we're encouraged to be in a constant state of fear. And we can start ticking off the number of things that we, we, we're supposed to be fearful of, from, from viruses to the economy to upcoming elections to cultural changes to, to international incidences like what's happening in, in Russia and in the Ukraine. And of course, we need to take precautions and we need to be prepared for the, for the things that come in our world, but do we, do we have to always be living in a state of fear? I mean, what, what in the world is wrong with us? This, this 
culture in which we live, the society in which we, we live, it, it, suddenly it's like a switch has been flipped and we used to be a brave people and now it seems like most of us are a bunch of wusses. Am I the only one that feels that way? Aren't we the same people, the same culture that defeated a, a Nazi fascism? Aren't we the same group of people that stared down the Soviet Union in the Cold War? Aren't we the same group of people that strapped men to a rocket and sent them off to the moon without fear? And now we're, we live in a time where we're afraid we're going to get our feelings hurt. We're, we're afraid that somebody is going to cancel us. I mean, it's really sad, isn't it? And it's not just the world that's fearful. I'm afraid that oftentimes it's the people in the church, the people who have been told over and over again, do not fear. Do not be afraid. But sometimes some of the most fearful people that you'll come across are people who claim the name of Jesus. You often find fear within the church. But we're not supposed to be afraid to live in fear. And we're certainly not supposed to fear the future because our God has got our future. Amen? He has won it already. But when we fear what's going to happen, when we fear the unknown, when we do that, we're no different than many of the people in the world who don't know what we know that don't have the hope and encouragement that's been shared with us. And so listen, if you're a Christian and you're not quite sure what's going to happen in the, in the afterlife, by the way, you're not the first. When we look at the context of what's being told here and written of Paul to, uh, by Paul to the Thessalonians, the people that Paul is writing to are a group of people that used to be pagan people. He, were, he was writing to Christians who were saved out of a pagan world and that pagan world in which they were living in, that Greek world, offered no real hope about life after death. If you were the one that believed in the resurrection like Christians do in that day and age, you would have been made fun of. Oh, you believe that people die and come back to life? What's wrong with you? They would have heard. In fact, Paul himself was mocked in the city of Athens for preaching about the resurrection of the dead. In the city of Thessalonica itself, there was actually an inscription that read like this, after death, no reviving. After the grave, no meeting again. Man, that's depressing, isn't it? That's concerning. On another grave in that same city were these words, I was not, I became, I am not, I care not. And so these are Christians who were growing and being raised and grew up in that environment, a bleak, dark environment, and now they're beginning to worry about some of their dead relatives, their dead family members. Yes, as they've been told, they were expecting Jesus to come back soon, but they, they had questions about that, about what happened to Christian, happens to Christians uh, after they've already died. Uh, what is it uh, for them? Was it bad if they had died before Jesus came back? Would, would, would you miss out if that's the case? And so, to be honest, they were pretty clueless about what happens to Christians when they die, just like a lot of Christians today. You know, Pew Research did a, a study recently and they did find this, that most Christians, however you define what a Christian is, there are a lot of people that claim the name of Christ who actually aren't true believers, but most people who claim the name of Jesus, 92% of us in this culture believe in a heaven. And, and they should believe, if they're a Christian, they should believe in heaven for, for heaven's sake. But when asked about what heaven was like, well, a lot of people weren't quite sure what that was about. When asked if heaven was free from suffering, Three out of ten, 30% of the people who claim to know Jesus and asked, were asked, do you believe that heaven is a place free of suffering? 30% uh, said, I don't know if that's quite true. Probably or definitely not true. 
If they, when they were asked, well, in heaven are you re- reunited with loved ones? A third said, probably not or definitely not. And also they were asked this, well, in heaven can you meet God? More than a third said, probably not or definitely not. These are pe- people who claim to be Christians. And if that's how some Christians feel about the afterlife, how in the world can you face what, it, what is beyond with any kind of encouragement? How can you have any kind of hope about what is to come? Well, Christian, and I, I take the quotes off of Christian when I'm speaking to you because I'm, I'm hopeful that you understand that a Christian is one who has believed in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone as God of the world and the only way of salvation based upon what He did upon the cross and coming out of the grave following His death. He has died for you and you have received salvation through Him. And if that is you, you are truly a Christian without the quotes. If you are a Christian... You do have reason to hope based on our understanding of Scripture. You don't have to be clueless about what happens after death. And in fact, Paul gives us some hopeful words here. In verse 13, Paul introduces us to two intentions he has regarding explaining some things about death. He wanted the Thessalonian believers, as well as us today, to be informed and to be hopeful. To be informed about death and to be hopeful about our death. As he says there in verse 13, we we do not want you to be uninformed. That means we don't want you to be ignorant about death. And so based on what we already know about the Greek culture in which the Thessalonians were raised, they were uninformed. They were ignorant about the afterlife. And Paul doesn't want them nor us to be ignorant. and And I don't want you to be ignorant about it either. And so he added this. We don't want you to be uninformed that you may not grieve as others do without hope. Paul is mindful of the fact that if you don't have hope about what happens to you after you die and after your loved ones die, then you're going to grieve and grieve deeply. I don't know if you've ever been to the funeral service of a family uh, who has lost a loved one who didn't know Jesus, but it's a different kind of grieving than, than what happens when we do a service for someone who knew Jesus. When somebody dies without Christ, there is no hope. It, 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 there is a deep depth of grief that occurs in that kind of service as opposed to when one of you passes away when you've trusted Christ and yes we're sad and we do have tears when you pass away but but friends we know we're going to see you again we know that there is hope that is to come and so if death isn't final we should have hope for what lies beyond the grave being informed, being, being hopeful about death is, is really the framework for which I'm going to share a couple of points with you today that I want you to take home with you, but also to live in the depths of your soul. Because my prayer is that if you'll embrace these two truths about what death is like and what, 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 what happens beyond death, you're going to find some encouragement, which is really what Paul's point of this whole passage is. So here is the first encouraging word out of two that I want to share with you, and it's this. Be informed. When it comes to death, be informed because death isn't the end. It isn't final. When you die, that's not it for you. There is actually more life on the other side of death. How do we know? Well, let's look at some of the words of Paul. Let's go back to verse 13. I've just quoted a couple of phrases from it. Let me read it to you again. He says very clearly, verse 13, But we do not want you to be uninformed brothers. Be mindful, Paul is talking to them like their family. He cares for them like, like a father uh, with his children or with a brother with his brothers and sisters, his siblings. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, 
that you may not grieve as those who do not have hope. Again, Paul is expressing here that death is not the end of us. That's why Paul is referring to death, not using the term death, but he uses a different word, a better word, a more apt word for those who are in Christ Jesus who dies. He calls it a sleep. We don't want you to be uninformed about those who are sleeping. Don't, don't you lo- lo- love how he uses that term? Who likes a good nap? How many of you are going to take a nap this afternoon? Anybody started yet? Let me just check here. All right. I just love how the Bible, Paul here uses it, but it's used elsewhere. Jesus referred to Lazarus' death as sleep. I think that's such a blessed terminology to use. I mean, who's really afraid of sleep? Sleep's such a good thing. When was the last time when, when somebody that you cared about fell asleep in the recliner and you just lost it? Oh my God, they, they went asleep. They fell asleep. They're taking a nap. We don't do that, right? We thought, oh, how sweet. They're taking a, taking a few winks, right? That's because sleep is a good thing. It's a gift. It's a, it's a, 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 a time of, of solace. So sleep is a good thing. We never cry over somebody falling asleep. We never weep over someone falling asleep. Why? Because we expect them to wake up. They're going to open their eyes again. And when you go to sleep, you don't stop existing, do you? You may check out for a few hours, but you're still chugging along. The same is true with death for the believer. Our existence isn't over when we die physically. We keep on keeping on. We're living on spiritually. And so if you're a Christian, friend, this ought to, to encourage you. The idea that death for a Christian is sleep is a good thing. And it ought to help you as you understand and process when a loved one of yours passes away. You see, we don't grieve over their departure as one who who has no hope because our hope is in Jesus. Our hope for them is in Jesus, and it's in the resurrection. Of course we're going to grieve when somebody that we love passes away. Of course we are. When they die, of course we're going to grieve because we love them. We enjoy relationship with them. We enjoy fellowship with them. We're going to miss those times of being with them. That hurts when they depart. But if they're Christians, we know their future is secure. We know where they are. We know we're going to see them again. And we rejoice because we know that they're even better off now than they were before. In fact, notice verse 14. Paul says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. There's that sleep metaphor again. Don't miss what Paul is saying here. He's literally saying that we fall asleep through Jesus. It doesn't matter how you die. Jesus is there to put you to sleep. Your body sleeps. You, your soul goes to be with Jesus. You know the word cemetery that, that we use? You know, we, we, we bury bodies and remains of people in cemeteries. You know the word cemetery? You know what that word actually means? It means sleeping place. Did you know that? Sleeping place. It's where bodies sleep while they wait, await the resurrection. And so the big promise that you find here in verse 13, and especially in verse 14, is that Christians will be resurrection, resurrected. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, we know that God will do the same for us. He will bring with those who have already died, He will bring those who have already died to be with Him. In fact, Paul would write in great detail in another book about this very subject. In in the 15th chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians, he makes this comment in verse 20. 
But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, and by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then it is coming those who belong to Christ. That, that, that word firstfruits in regards to Jesus' resurrection, that's an Old Testament picture. It's related to worship. And one of the ways the Old Testament saints would worship is that they would bring the first fruits of their harvest and bring it to the temple and offer it to, to God. And Paul is capturing that Old Testament worship imagery to say this, that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of a whole host of a harvest of resurrections that would follow. Meaning that if you're a Christian and you die, you, if you fall asleep in Jesus, because Jesus had also died and came back to life, you too can have the hope as a follower of Jesus and being in Christ that when you die, you will come back, be raised from the dead just like Jesus did. One day, a great resurrection is going to take place. It'll be in the last days, and all who are in Christ will be resurrected just as Christ was resurrected. And this is our hope. Speaking of hope, here's another truth that I want to share with you that Paul is giving to us here. He's challenging us to do that very thing. Number two, when it comes to our death, we need to be hopeful. Be hopeful because our Christian relationships, they're forever. Friend, this, this is one of the great things about being a follower of Christ, and there are a lot of great things, but there are a few that rank as high as this. That the people that you care about most in life, if they know Jesus and you know Jesus, when one of you dies and you're separated, that that separation isn't forever. That, that our relationships are forever. They never end. Of course there are going to be some interruptions to our togetherness. It's, it's a part of the fallout from the sin and brokenness of this world. And it most often happens with one, when one of our loved ones die. But one day resurrection is coming. One day Jesus is coming back and when it happens... There is going to be this sweet reunion that will never, ever end. We will be together, and we will also be united with the Lord. Paul describes what that will look like one day there in, beginning in verse 15. He says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left at the, until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Here Paul's talking about a future time, some time that's obviously in front of our future, a time is coming when Jesus is going to return. We know the, the promise that was made when Jesus, after his death, burial, and resurrection, he was on earth for about 40 days, and then he ascended to the right hand of the Father. We refer to that as the ascension. We were told that he would return just as he left. Remember the angels said that to the, to the, to the apostles, to the disciples? And that is some future date out there. And we don't know when that's going to happen when Jesus is coming back. And we can certainly look around at the state of the world and the way things are going on and get a feeling that it's probably soon that he's coming, but we really don't know when he's coming back. No one knows. But one thing that we do know is that he keeps his word. And if he says he's going and he's coming back, like he says in John chapter 14, if he's going to prepare a place for us and He's coming back to get us, we know that that's going to take place. Jesus is coming back one day. Now, Paul describes some of what that will look like when it happens there in verse 16. He says, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, as some translations say, with a shout, 
and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Here Paul is explaining and laying out Jesus' game plan for his return, for his coming back. Some like to, 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 to attach the word rapture uh, to this passage of Scripture, which, by the way, is a word that doesn't actually appear anywhere in Scripture, here or elsewhere in the Bible. Um, but, but some like to use that, that, that terminology. And in fact, I, I'm, I'm not going to wade into all of the interpretations that, that, uh, of what could be going on here in this passage. A lot of it has to do and ha- happen, what happens in relationship, uh, what this passage means in relationship to the book of Revelation. Uh, how uh, Jesus' return and the, the calling of, of those who are alive to meet up in the air with those who have already preceded uh, them in death, uh, how that relates to the great tribulation as described in Revelation, as well as the, the millennium also mentioned in Revelation chapter 20. And this passage of Scripture does give a picture of that, but I, I want to be careful here that we not miss the bigger purpose of why Paul is writing all of this, Paul's point here is not mainly to be prophetic, though he is explaining some things that are coming, but his main point here is to encourage us about what happens after death, beyond death. And it's this, for us, Jesus is coming back one day. He is returning, and when he he does, there's going to be this incredible reunion, and we're going to be reunited with other Christians. Those who are alive when it happens will not precede those, meaning Jesus in the air, will not precede those who have died in Christ, but, but then we will all be united together with the Lord in the air. Again, verse 17, he says, Then we, and we who are alive, those who are left, will be caught up. Notice that it says together with them. So those who are alive, if, will it happen in our lifetime? I don't know. We do know that scriptures tell us to always be looking for the return of Christ as if it could happen at any point. And Jesus' return is imminent. He could return immediately. He could return before this message is over today, which is an encouragement for us all to be right with the Lord, to be prepared for that. But we don't know when it's going to happen, but there's going to be a time. It may be beyond all of our lifetimes. It may happen in the midst of our lifetime. And some of us who, who will still be on this earth when he comes back and will still be alive. But those who are still alive, those who will, will meet those in the air who have preceded them in death, and they will meet him in the clouds, verse 17 says, to meet the Lord in the air. And he says then, so we will always be with the Lord. The reason why I don't want to wade into all the particular interpretations we can get from this is there's a bigger purpose here, and it has to do with our understanding of what death is like for the believer. And I know that death can seem so final when we lose a loved one because it's hard knowing we're not going to see them anymore in this world. That they're going to be missing from every significant event moving forward. They're going to miss birthdays and holidays and, and family gatherings and the birth of children and grandchildren. It's hard knowing that, that they're not going to be there. It's hard knowing that you can't pick up the phone and have a conversation with them anymore. When Jennifer's mother passed away with cancer many years ago, we knew then that every birthday, every holiday after that, we're going to take a different kind of significance. I still remember we were, before she passed, she had cancer. We knew that it was coming unless the Lord intervened. And we, we, we had the video camera out and we were taking pictures at a level we never did before. 
because we knew that the time was drawing near when she wasn't, Jennifer's mother wasn't going to be with us anymore. We were trying to soak it in as much as we can. And we were also beginning to grieve knowing that our kids would never know her in this world. But one day we will know her. They will know her again and we will see her again. And that's because we're promised that a reunion is coming. And that those who are alive when Jesus comes back will be caught up together with those who have already died. But get this, as sweet and as awesome as it is to know that those who have died before us, that there's going to be a reunion for us to experience with them again, that pales into comp- in comparison to the fact that that same moment is also going to be our first physical meetup with Jesus. This, this God, this one that we have believed in and trusted in by faith, and we've done so without sight. We've not seen Jesus. The day is coming when we get caught up in the air and we meet with him and we are going to have a face-to-face meetup if we've not died already and seen him already. We'll be face-to-face with him. And from then on, all who believe in Jesus will always be with Jesus. It's a forever union. It's not a reunion you meet up for a few hours for a weekend and you go on about your business. This is a forever reunion for every Christian. And all the pain, all the suffering, all the loss, all the grieving, all the separation will all be over. And we'll forever be together and we will forever be with the Lord. Doesn't that fill you with hope? This world is difficult sometimes. This life is not easy often. There are challenges, there are, there are pushbacks, there are grieving, there are trouble. But the day is coming when we will experience the sweetest of reunion with the God who has created us and created us with the purpose of knowing Him and worshiping Him. And we know we've struggled with that in this life. We are born apart from Him, but we've come to faith in Him. And we now know Him and we worship Him Him to the best of our ability in this life. But the day is coming when we will be in His presence forever and ever and ever, fulfilling our purpose in life for all of eternity. And getting to do that, all of us together, as well as with those who have preceded us in death. Let me tell you, that ought to be hopeful news for you, encouraging news. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the Thessalonian Christians because for many of us, we've been raised with a Christian worldview. I don't want to speak for everyone, but if you're like me, I've always been taken to church. My parents have been faithful churchgoers and Christians uh, for my entire life, and I eventually came to know Christ. And so I was raised with this worldview of knowing that if you die in Jesus, you get to be with Jesus forever as well, experiencing reunion with other people forever, uh, other Christians forever, but not the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians weren't raised like that. They, they lived in a pagan society. They were li- living and raised in a very, uh, with a very bleak outlook about death. But, you know, Paul shows up with his friends, his ministry team, his mission team, shares the gospel with them. They were there just three weeks before they were run out of town. But you're now, a, a, as a Thessalonian, you, you, you're raised in a pagan society. You've now come to know Christ. But you're not quite confident about what happens to you after after you die because Paul he told you about the resurrection of Jesus but he didn't give you all the details before he was forced out of there but then Paul writes to you and in the midst of writing you and encouraging you he begins to pin some words about how Jesus is coming back and then he says look the Lord Jesus Christ himself is going to come down and and the souls of the dead believers will come with him there's going to be a, a lot of noise a lot of commotion 
And the bodies of the dead believers will rise first, and those Christians who are, who are uh, still alive on earth will then rise next, and everybody's going to meet one another in the air. Christ is there, and that's when all of eternity begins. And they've had all of these questions and all of these concerns and all of these worries about themselves and about their loved ones, but then they get this encouraging word that it doesn't end when you die. There's more. It doesn't stop with your death. Death is not final. And not only is it not final, not only do you get to keep on living, but everybody that you care about that knows Jesus gets to keep on living too, and they get to keep on living in the very presence of Jesus. Can you imagine what that did to their hearts? Can you imagine how it encouraged them? It's the very reason why Paul shared these things. This is the point of the text. It's to give them encouragement. It's not simply to, to describe the particulars of Christ's return, though he does that. It's to encourage us. For he says there in verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this passage of Scripture is here to encourage you. Jesus is coming back. And if you're alive when he comes back, you don't have to worry. It may not be good in those days, but you're going to be meeting Him in the air. And if you've died already, don't worry. Your body's going to be resurrected. Either way, you're going to live forever. And this is the hope we have. But friend, let me say this. I have to say it. If you do not know Jesus, i got nothing for you. There's no hope. I have no hope to share with you. See, there are two prevailing perspectives on eternal life Held by both non-Christians and held by non-Christians in Western culture, either you don't believe in life after death, or when you die you're going to go to heaven, whatever you think that may be. That's the two prevailing non-Christian viewpoints about what happens to a person when they die. If you live in the Western culture, either you don't believe there's life after after death, you don't go anywhere, or you believe that when you die you're going to go to some kind of blissful place. Don't know what that looks like. Don't know why I believe it, but you're going to go there. Friend, let me say this to you. Eternal life is not automatic. It doesn't happen for everyone. It's only for those who have a relationship with Jesus. And based on my understanding of Scripture, those outside of Christ do not and cannot have this hope. In fact, outside of Jesus, what you have is the opposite of hope. Instead of eternal, everlasting hope, the future of those without Jesus is eternal suffering. You know, Jesus talked about that once. He, de he described really the two realities of what happens to a person when they die. He describes them in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25. In fact, I'm done with this passage of Scripture. Would you go with me to Matthew chapter 25 for just a moment? Because I'm going to read a, a larger passage of Scripture. Matthew chapter 25. Toward the end of, of, of that first Gospel, if you go to verse 31... Matthew 25, verse 31. Those, those, as we'll see here, those who have hope of eternal life in Christ are going to be described as His sheep. And those outside of Christ, those that do not have the hope of eternal life, Jesus is going to describe as goats. So Jesus said in verse 31 of Matthew 25, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Verse 40, the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So Jesus will say that the sheep, that the righteous, will enter into eternal life. But then he goes on to talk about the goats. And these will be those who do not trust Christ, those without Jesus. Verse 41, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me. Could there be no sadder words to ever hear? From the God who has created you to know Him and to to relate to Him, to fellowship with Him, and to, to be in a state of worship with Him, to hear the words from, Depart from me. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then they will also answer saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will say to them, answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the, one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Friends, this describes the two realities of those who die. Of those who die in Christ versus those who die without Christ. And if you die without Christ, without Jesus, not only can you have no reason for hope, but you have every reason to be hopeless. Because eternal punishment is your destiny. Your only hope is in Jesus. See, this is what Jesus has done for you. As I've said more than once in this message, That Jesus has created everything, and He's including you. He's created you and created you with a purpose. And that purpose is to to know Him, to be known by Him, that you might live your life with Him as the center of everything. With He being the purpose and reason for your existence. But the very first of us, the first human beings that He created, not long after He created them, disobeyed God and As a result of their disobedience, they were no longer able to fulfill their life's purpose. Their sin, their rebellion, caused them to be separated from God. They were forced out of God's presence, forced away from a relationship with Him, with no ability to be good enough, to be right enough, to fix things that that were broken between them and God. And every human being that has been born from them, which is all of us, every last human being has now been born with the same curse as Adam and Eve, who first disobeyed God. We're all born with with a curse of sin and born separated from a holy and righteous God. And the same consequence and need that was upon them is upon us. There is nothing that you or I can do to to make things right between, between the God who created us and the God that we turned away from. I know that we have our church houses, we have our church ministries, we encourage people to be present, to give, to serve to be good people, to be moral people, upstanding people. And as important as those things are, none of those things make things between you and God right. In fact, the Bible tells us that the best of our, at the best of our ability, 
The best 15 minutes of our life is nothing to God. It, it falls short. As the scriptures say, our righteousness is like trash, rubbish, filthy rags before a holy and righteous God. And there is nothing you or I can do to do enough good things to be made right with Him. But here's the good news, the promise of Scripture. We call the gospel the good news for this reason. And the gospel is this, that Jesus did for you and did for me what we could not do. He fixed the problem. He opened the way of salvation for us to know God again, to be saved by Him, to be forgiven of our sins, and to be able to to fulfill our purpose of knowing Him and worshiping Him. And He did it by paying the penalty of our sin. What is the penalty? The Bible says that when you are a sinner, when you rebel against God, the, the, the cost of that is death, eternal death. You die once in this life physically, but you also die eternally. And the Bible says that once you've died, comes the judgment. And after that, the judgment you, that you face will be, will be determined over whether or not you trusted Jesus in this life. Jesus died on the cross for your sins and for mine. He was buried, the Scriptures tell us. And He came back to life according to the Scriptures. And as I've said often here, His death, burial, and resurrection are so significant, the most significant event in human history, in all of history, because His death paid the penalty of our sin. And His resurrection proved that that what He did on the cross was true. You see, the reason why Jesus was able to take your sin upon His person and die in your place is that He was not a human being in the same way you and I are. Oh, He was fully human. The Bible tells us that God took on flesh, being both God and man in the same person. That's who Jesus is, God incarnate, God in the flesh, fully man but also fully God. Meaning that He could fully represent us as a human being, but because He was God, He had never committed sin. And it also meant that he had the power over sin and over death so that when he died and was buried, he had under his own ability and his own power, he had the ability to come back to life. And so he did the first fruits of a host of resurrections. And so when Jesus died for our sins and came back to life, that act and that act alone made it possible for you to be forgiven and for you to have a relationship with him, to have a relationship with the God who created you. However, it is not something that happens automatic. As, as I began this message, early on in the message, I referred to those who called themselves Christians, and I put the little scare quotes up there. There are a lot of people who claim to be Christians simply because they live in what they believe to be a Christian nation, or because their mother or father were Christians, or because they were a part of a vacation Bible school one day and raised their hand and, and uh, someone to, uh, encouraged them to pray a prayer, but they, they really didn't understand what was going on. And they really never surrendered their all to to Jesus. You see, not everyone who claims the name of Christ is a follower of Jesus, but only those who believe in Him and turn to Him in repentance. That means that you surrender your all, no longer following following your own way and trusting your own way, but you admit that you've made a mess of your life, you ask the Lord to forgive you, and you surrender everything to Him. That's what it means to believe in Him and to turn to Him. And only those who believe in Him and turn to Him will be saved. And only those who have been saved can have the hope we've talked about today. So here's my challenge to you today in light of all that I've shared. One is to be informed and be hopeful that you might be encouraged about your death. Death is not the end. Friend, you can live forever and you can live forever with your Christian family and friends, but also with the Lord. 
But if you do not have this hope today, if you've not yet been changed by Jesus because you've yet to believe in Him, you've yet to turn to Him, my encouragement to you is to do that today. Believe and repent. Have faith in Him and turn to Him. And here's what you need to do that if you want that to be true for you. You have to admit that you're a sinner and have fallen short of His, his goodness, His glory. You need to believe that He is who He said He was, that He is the God of the universe. And you believe that He came to do and did what He came to do, which is He died for your sins, was buried and came back to life. And then you turn to Him by committing your life to Him. And if you will do that, Jesus will save you. And you can be encouraged because you have this hope in the life that is to come. Now I want to have a word of prayer for those of you who even in this moment may be struggling over the message that's been proclaimed today. Perhaps even now you realize that you have deep within you a fear that if something were to happen to you today that you would not experience life as, as it's intended for Christians. You're not going to go to heaven because you don't know Jesus. You'll not be experiencing resurrection. You will not be experiencing reunion. You will not spend it forever with Jesus because you've never known Him in this life. So I want to pray for you and I'm going to pray that even now that the Spirit of God will, will be bringing conviction upon your heart and if you are truly not a follower of Jesus, that the Spirit will impress upon you that today is the day that you need to be saved. Can I pray for you? Let's pray. Lord, I'm so grateful that you've not let us wonder and wander. That, Lord, you have made it very clear through Paul's words that we don't have to wonder about what life is to be like after we die or whether we even have it, this afterlife but that we can be informed that for the believer, death is but sleep. And it means an ending of the trials and tribulations of this world and the beginning of a forever reunion with those that we love that know you. But even more so, a forever unity with you that will never end. And Lord, we have our, our hopeful eyes upon that future. And I'm grateful that we have now, as we have had in your word, these reaffirming truths that following after you is a blessed thing. But Lord, I also am aware that not everyone who claims to know Jesus actually knows you. There, there are those who have been misinformed about what, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Lord, it's not simply to be the, a member of uh, and on the role of some local church or to be baptized or, or to be a good person. But Lord, it all begins and solely begins by recognition that we're sinners and that we need to be saved and cannot save ourselves. And that you, Jesus, and you alone are the only way that a person can be saved based upon what you did for us on the cross. And so Holy Spirit, if you would be at work, even now as I, as I pray, bringing conviction to those who need to be convicted and drawing those who, who are lost, drawing them to yourself that they may be found. Lord, you do it, we pray. And we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen and amen.